Well, good morning. morning. Wow, look at you. Man, beautiful weather, spring break, March Madness, and here you are. Way to go. Good job. I hope you had a good week. Nice to see you all. I was out to Portland this week uh, on some business. I have a son that lives out there, kind of specializes in hospital construction and got laid off, so he's been working real hard at finding work. I said, you know, why don't we just... uh, why don't we just hop in your car and head down to Phoenix and take in a couple spring training games? You, you, know, you know on a map, Portland and Phoenix are only this far apart. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. It's just 23 hours. I'm, I'm tired. If I, if I nod off at the second point, just uh, somebody yell amen or, amen or something, and I'll kind of be back with you, okay? So anyway, but... Now, you'd have to be a certain age to get this, but I shook hands with Ferguson Jenkins. I mean, Ferguson Jenkins in the 70s and 80s was, was one of the greatest pitchers in all of baseball, was a Hall of Famer, was the rock of the Chicago Cubs, and uh, he was at one of the Diamonds, and uh, ah, that was this, this hand. So, <laughs> anyway. Well, hey, we're, uh, we're working on spiritual champions, what it means to be a spiritual champion, and we're relating it to mastering the Word of God today. One of the, uh, one of the great tools of becoming a spiritual championing, champion and functioning at that level and that dimension is a mastery of the Word of God. So uh, let's jump in and uh, uh, just give us a couple scriptures to begin with that give us some idea of what the Bible says about itself. Over in Psalm 1, 1 and 3, it says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, they meditate. Now, that word meditate is actually... Uh, it's the same word used, this is a little earthy, but it's the same word used for a cow chewing its cud. And if you grew up on a farm, you know a cow chews its cud, it swallows it, it regurgitates it back up, it chews it some more, and just kind of goes, you know, breakfast just lately, never. <laughs> anyway, it just stays with that. It. It's the same idea, meditates on that word day and night. Then Hebrews 4.12, indeed, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We believe the Bible is the authoritative, inspired Word of God. Now, having said that, we're going to kind of march through three little points today. Number one is the traditional approach to the Scriptures. Number two, some problems that that approach brings for some of us. And number three, an alternative view. So let's have a look at the traditional approach. Now, can I rush to say, we believe here the Bible is God's Word, it's powerful. Dave Wilkerson, who founded Teen Challenge and worked with gang members and drug addicts in New York, said that he never found anything. If there was somebody who over a long period of time had had used drugs, said he never found anything that could be regenerative to the brain like memorizing Scripture. It had that kind of power. And uh, so we're talking about a book that has 
supernatural qualities to it. Now this traditional view that I'm going to give, for some of you this, this approach works. God works with all of us in very different ways. Just like, because he's in relationship with us, just like you are in relationship differently with every person in your life. Little differences, little nuances that are different. So it is with how God relates to you. So for some of you this morning, what I'm going to describe as as the traditional approach works. If it works, way to go. Stay with it. Stay on it. Don't be disloyal to it. What I'm trying to say this morning is not to encourage you to be disloyal to an approach that works. It wouldn't be the traditional approach if it didn't work for some people. But there are others of us for whom this approach has not caused us to meet Christ. And I want to suggest an alternative for some of us. Okay, here's the traditional approach. Traditional approach is somewhere in life, maybe at the moment of crisis or difficulty, maybe at a stage of transition, we realize we have a need. One day we decide to give our hearts to Jesus Christ. We find that if we ask Christ into our life and ask Him to forgive us, He'll forgive our sins, He'll come into our life. We're told that if we died that night, we would go to heaven. We can live with the assurance of salvation. And the Bible says that all things have become new and we are on a new track. Now, in that or soon after, we're often told we need to be part of a fellowship of people where the Bible is is consistently lifted up and preached. And so maybe that's why you're here at Journey. And so we gather together once a week and we, we listen to the Scriptures and we think about the Scriptures and the Scriptures are in, expounded on. And uh, that's one leg of the stool. Then there's another leg. So now, usually in that kind of setting, someone will tell you, hey, you should... Uh, you ought to be in some small group or some accountability group. And so... One morning, some guy rolls out of bed, the alarm goes off at six, and his wife says, where are you going? He says, ah, I'm going to go to this accountability group over at IHOP. And he gets there, and they hand him some book for eight bucks, and we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit. And we happen to be on uh, the fruit of love, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We're studying love, and so everybody kind of thumbs over to 1 Corinthians 13, and they start studying love, and Maybe one of the topics is for that day is patient because one of the things in 1 Corinthians 13 is love is patient. Say, hey, what do you think about that? Who's patient? Who's not patient? I have a little trouble with patience. We all kind of share our thoughts. And then there's a kind of a third leg of the stool, and that's our private devotions. There ought to be a time in our life, in our day, in our week, where we're just alone with God, and we're talking to God, and often we'll use some little tool like daily bread. I've always liked daily bread. It's a little, little booklet, and there'll be like one verse, and then there's usually a little story, so it kind of hangs with you. Do you kind of get in the picture? And we're told, now listen, this is good for you. This is important for you to do. And so we hear the exposition of the scriptures. It often kind of goes something like this. Maybe I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments, and after expounding on the Ten Commandments, I'll say, now, there's at least three things we ought to learn from this. One is that God ought to be the authority in our life. Is He your authority? And number two, God has His ways, and you have your ways. Are you living by God's ways? And number three, obedience is the only way to go, and are you really obeying? And... uh, All right? Now, there are people in this room for whom that approach has brought them close to God. 
and I'm happy for you. There are others of us that can't get the words off the page. And the more we try, the guiltier we feel. We know it should be dynamic. We know it should have energy. We know that it should be life-changing. And yet we're, we're having to constantly work at it, discipline ourselves, corral ourselves. Now, you know something? Nobody has to discipline me to eat. So I, I know what some of you are thinking. No, that's not, you know, I mean, there's never been a time in my, in, in my life in our marriage where, where uh, my wife Marta says, all right, now, Jerry, it's been three days. You've got to eat something. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm way past three days. I'm like, is it lunch yet? <laughs> it says 9.30. <laughs> oh, you know why? Because you and I were built with an appetite for food to sustain us. Your spirit and my spirit has an appetite for spiritual reality. And the problem is not in the scripture if we're having trouble eating spiritually. Could it be that it's how we're coming to it that causes us to constantly be struggling? And so we just get to feel guiltier and guiltier. You know, so come to Jesus and feel guilty as me. Now, the, the single thing that throws a wrench in the traditional view is that it's primarily cognitive. It's primarily around understanding. And for most of us, understanding by itself will not produce life change. I'm not saying understanding shouldn't be part of it, but it is not enough to make the recipe edible. Understanding by itself does not produce usually life change. A lot of us here are working on stuff that we've been working on a long time, and a long time ago we understood why it was there and what it's about. And we're still working on it. It's, it's not about understanding. In fact, in the spiritual world, there are many things that you must obey first, and then you understand. So, let's look at a few reasons why this traditional approach doesn't always get us there. All right? Number one, because it is primarily knowledge-based. Its motivation is understanding. And the Bible says that when the primary motivation is knowledge-based and understanding, now, this is, I don't mean this to be hard, but the product is arrogance. You know why the church world can be so mean? Because it's an unintended consequence of a system that's knowledge-based. 
The church world, if you've been in it very long, you'll know enough to know that the church world can be a, a not nice place. And it's not that way because the people are mean. You can go to a lot of the homes of those people and they will be nice people. But somehow they get together and it's like sour milk. You can be at somebody's home and say, all right, we're going to go to the meeting. And they get to the meeting and it's... And you think, what, what happened to these people? It's not because they're bad people. But when you base a system on knowledge and it's primarily about understanding, then you and I, all we do is hurl ideas back and forth. And we carry our ideas around like hand grenades with a pin pulled. And somebody takes a whack at our ideas, and we just lean back and launch. And after a while, we just think that's the way it is. And you know what? We defend that as righteous. That's why we're so blind to it. Now, now please, I'm... I'm here because I love the church. But I'm not some novice in the church world. And I've been around dozens of church fights. And I can tell you the anatomy of church fights. But at the heart of it, it's because we have a system that's often about knowledge and information and it produces arrogance rather than humility. So it's information and knowledge-based. Number two, that kind of system reduces my assurance of salvation in my walk with the Lord. Because here's how it works. If I just keep my... I'm going to sermons on Sunday and my small group on Wednesday and I'm having my daily devotions three or four times a week and I'm piling up data. I've got notebook after notebook, book after book idea after idea, and I'm just piling up data. But I can't do, I, can't, I just can't get to all that stuff. And the gap between what I'm learning and where I'm living starts to get wider and wider and wider and wider. And the wider it gets, the more uncomfortable I get. And you know what eventually happens? When I try to live with a, a gap that wide about what's being talked about in the church world and what's really going on in my life, it drives me underground. And the very thing you and I need in order for change to happen is to live truthfully before God and with one another. That very ingredient disappears as I dive underground because I, I'm embarrassed by this gap, this performance gap. And one of two things tends to happen. Either I begin to conclude that evidently other people can pull this off, but I can't. And there's something wrong with me. And I live a life, a Christian life. I'm not going to abandon my faith, perhaps, but I live with a Christian life of, of constantly diminishing expectations. Or I begin to think there's something wrong with God that he's unreasonable. You remember the, the parable? He's an unreasonable taskmaster. And I begin to back away from him because all I ever hear from him is scolding. Or at least that's how it feels. So it reduces my assurance. A third is, it causes me... See, if I'm, if I'm knowledge-based, and I got all this information that I need to live up to, in order to function, I just have to start editing stuff out. I edit out the mystery. 
There's a lot of stuff I'm not going to be able to make sense of this side of heaven. And you know, I just, I just pretend the stuff I don't want to do, I just pretend it isn't there. And I hang out with people who don't remind me that it's there. So like, let's go to an obvious one, Matthew 18. Hey, if you and your brother are having a difficulty, handle it relationally. Go to them, work it out. If you're not sure that can happen, bring a friend and sit down relationally and say, you know, I want to stay, I want us to be on the same side. How can we do this? Now, let's go back to church fights. Do you, do you know how often that happens in a church fight? Is there a number below zero? I'm, uh, I'm exaggerating. Um, but not by much. Now, why do we do that? Going to someone else and handling it relationally because Christ is part of Trinity, God is always in relationship. See, every doctrine can be lived. Matthew 18 is an expression of the Trinity of Christ, the Trinity of God, I mean. Not doing that is an expression that we don't trust God's ways. We just don't trust Him. We think if we do it that way, we're going to be decimated. And so we just edit it out. And a fourth is because it diminishes relationship. (laughs) A guy once came to me, nowhere near here, and... uh, he was working on his seventh marriage and he was unhappy with his wife. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, I don't understand how this happened. I thought, I'm never going to let this happen again. So he says, you know what I did? I got out a piece of paper and I made a long list of things that she had to be. <laughs> I said, all right, now if we're on number seven, Would it be too presumptuous of me to suggest that maybe part of the fault is yours? (laughs) He wouldn't even talk to me after that. But you know what he'd done? He'd made a cognitive list of how it was supposed to work. And it diminished any of the relational basis for it working. Nobody lives by a list. It's not how relationships function. And uh, we end up talking more about the Bible than we do about Jesus. In fact, the Bible becomes our Christ. Now let me go back to the traditional view. I have a lot of friends who live in that view and it works for them. And I'm happy it works for them. And I sometimes puzzle about why it doesn't work for me. But it didn't. And I couldn't just let the words lay on the page. Something else had to be going on. And so the alternative view I'm going to share with you is just kind of how I journey with the scripture. But let me preface it with a story that illustrates the view. One of the greatest preachers I ever heard was a 
wonderful black preacher from Southern California called E.V. Hill. I heard him preach over in Southern California years ago. Actually, I heard him preach in Milwaukee, but he had a church in Southern California, and uh, it was just electric. You'd be laughing one minute and crying the next and hearing God's voice through the whole thing, and it was it was, almost, it was just magical, the presence of the Holy Spirit and all that. When E.V. Hill and his wife were younger preachers, they were, they were asking the Lord to tell them where they should move. And there were kind of two churches they were looking at. One was, I don't know where the one was, but one was in Southern California. They declared to the Lord which one they wanted to go to, which was the other church. But they offered that to the Lord, and the Lord says, Well, since you asked me, I'd prefer you go to the one in Southern California. Now, they didn't want to go to that one for a number of reasons, but I'll give you just one example. This was a church that when they had a congregational meeting would hire off-duty police officers. <laughs> off-duty police officers to be president of the congregational meeting to either prevent or break up the fights that would occur as they debated what they should do for the Lord. <laughs> and... Uh, So Evie Hill met with him. They wanted him to come. And he said, all right, I'll come if you let me do this. We're going to start by studying the book of Acts, which is how the church was formed in the New Testament. And we're going to preach on it and teach on it, and we're not going to leave it until we live it. You want me to do that? He said, oh, yeah, come. Well, you know, rhetoric's always cheap in the church world. And so... They, they, I'm, not, I'm sure many of them didn't actually believe that that's how he was going to function, but that's how he's going to function. And the first time there was a blow-up, he gathered them all together, told them to take out their Bibles. He said, well, let's get into the book of Acts and see if there was any problems in the book of Acts that reflect the problem we're dealing with. They found something that looked like it. They said, well, what did God tell them to do? All right, is that's what we're going to do. And then they did it. The next time there was a blow-up, they pulled out their Bibles. E.B. Hill got them all together. He says, all right, is there anything going on in the book of Acts that was like this? They found something that was like this. Is what God tell them to do? What's he telling us to do? And then they did it. Month after month after month after month. They pulled out the book of Acts. They found out what it said to do, and they did it. By the time E.V. Hill retired, that church in Southern California was one of the greatest preaching points and one of the most significant works of the Lord and one of the most redemptive places in that entire part of the country. But it was because they knew that understanding wasn't enough. They had to do it. So let me give you an alternative approach to the Bible. Number one, come to the scriptures with a need or a question. Do you know that almost all the people who came to Jesus came because they had a need? We don't ever find Jesus saying, now listen to me, listen, listen, you're being shallow, this is shallow. If you want to come to me, you ought to come to me because after all, I'm the son of the living God. You ought to be kneeling and worshiping me. I'm God. Jesus Jesus never said that. People came because they had a need. And Jesus honored their need. He didn't say it was shallow or cheap to have a need. And and beyond that, he didn't require of them that they become believers before he worked in their life. He served people without qualification. He just didn't disqualify them because 
they weren't going to become believers. So he heals all the lepers, and only one even comes back and thanks him. He healed them anyway. So you come to the Bible, you come with a need or a question. And then you open the scriptures. Wherever you're reading, whatever you're reading, and you ask, now Lord, what do you want to say to me today about this question or problem? Number two, what do you want me to do? Notice the immediacy of that. The connection between the truth and behavior. Number three, the reason why this matters is because that little process right there builds faith. The Bible says without faith, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we begin to hear the Lord talk to us about our issue, it gives us courage to act. And so when God showed up at Gideon's doorstep, living fearfully as he was living, the first thing God did is to address the fears of Gideon in order to give, give, uh, give him faith to do the next thing. Because the next thing was to act. What is God inviting me to do? So in Gideon's case, God didn't just show up and say, all right, now Gideon, I got an idea. I want you to round up 300 guys, and I'm going to send you out there to that warlike tribe of the Midianites. They got 135,000, but don't worry, don't worry, I'm with you. Now that gap was too big for Gideon to jump. So God addressed his issues, and then he said, now there's a pole of Asherah. People worship this God. You go chop down that pole. And that little action built faith in Gideon's heart. So, you go to the Lord with a question or a need. You ask him, what are you saying to me about this question or need today, and what do you want me to do? That builds your faith. Based on that faith, you determine that as the opportunity arises that day, you will act. Because God shows up at the point of action. Gideon thought that when he cut down that pole, he would be a dead man. And when in fact he was not a dead man, but God had honored his action, it gave him courage to act again. And so he acted. And so we find in the, the book of Acts, the acts of the apostles, the actions they were taking to flesh out what God was saying to them. Question or need? What's God saying to me and what does he want me to do? Builds my faith to act. When I act, God shows up. Now, now please catch this. When God shows up, he starts to become real. See, I couldn't get God off the page. The page was just print. How do I get God off the page? And when I start to act, God starts showing up. And he starts to become real. Now, now here's why this matters. When Jesus was once asked, can you give me a Reader's Digest condensed version of what this whole thing is about? He said, you bet. All the law and the prophets 
Everything is about this, loving the Lord and loving others as you would love yourself. It's hard to love someone you do not know. And you do not know Christ just because he's saved you. Any more than I fully know someone just because I marry him. When God starts showing up in the everyday affairs of my life, I began to experience his holiness, experience his mercy, experience his grace, experience his patience. I began to know him and my love for him grows. And he lifts up off that page and he begins to live. Now, this next little step is crucial because the fellowship of the disciples was primarily around their following an active activity, following Christ. And Christ had talked to them and he'd send them out and then they'd come back and then they would share what happened. Their sharing was based on their action, not based on their ideas. Now, I don't mean to create too clear a dichotomy about that. But when we start getting together and talk about what God did yesterday, the dynamic is different than if we, in a detached way, share ideas about what patience is. I know a pastor of a very successful church who was constantly having classes for his congregation because he wanted the believers to learn how to share their faith. And all everybody did was get more information about sharing their faith than almost nobody shared their faith. He thought, i got to be going about this wrong because these are good people. So instead of just having all these classes, he decided to invite people who were sharing their faith to come through a meeting. There was about four people that showed up. And he asked them, he said, uh, we're not going to have a class about sharing our faith, but you all say you regularly share your faith. Would you like to get together once a month and just share the stories about what's happening as you share your faith? How God put a burden upon, burden on your heart for someone? How he opened up circumstances? What barriers you, barriers you faced? When you succeeded, do you have anybody to celebrate with? They were ecstatic because they had nobody to talk to. And so he said, one of the most dynamic meetings of his month would be when this small group would get together and talk about what was happening around the action they were taking. By the way, Knowledge puffs up, but when you actually start acting, it generates humility. It has the opposite effect. And so the fellowship developed not around the ideas of our faith, but the actions of our faith. And as Christ becomes real, we begin to integrate the book into our life because we're meeting the living Christ page by page. Now this is an exciting part to me. The Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld 
His glory. When what's on the printed page becomes your life, becomes flesh and blood, it becomes incarnational. And there is a glory to that. Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Because he was the fleshly incarnation of the Heavenly Father. Then he said, now you, if you're a believer here this morning, you are the body of Christ. I'm leaving. But I want to be able to tell the world, if you want to know what I'm like, you look at my body. So imagine a couple of you are sitting together and you're talking about patience. And one of you, you're talking about patience in theoretical knowledge terms. And one of you says, well, you know, I've never read a lot about patience, but I know Harry. I know how he responded when his wife had an affair. And I know how he responded when his neighbor dumped rocks on his farmland. And I know what patience looks like because I've watched Harry and I see the patience of Christ when I see that man. That's incarnational. And the truth has now lifted from the print and the page into your life and you become the glory of Christ to a broken world. And that's how I try to come to the Bible. Not because I have any fault with the traditional view, which works for many people, or it wouldn't be traditional view. But because I couldn't get Christ off the page until I started connecting it to action and integrating it incarnationally into my life. I think that's what God wants to say to us this morning. Would you put your things aside as we finish up today? And uh, Can I ask you to bow your heads with me for just a few moments? And, and uh, we're going to pray in just a moment. And, hey, um, I'm so glad that you're here and you've been so attentive and nobody's going to embarrass you during this part of our service. But if you just bow your head and not look around, could I ask you, have you been hungry? Are there some of us this morning who are hungry for Christ to come off the page and be alive? We weary about the guilt we feel for not being able to generate enough appetite in the Bible. Maybe the fault is not in the scriptures, nor in us. It's simply in the approach we've been taking. Right, right here this morning, you could pray. You could say, Lord, i got to try something. I don't want to just let the pages lie flat. I want to meet Christ in my journey. So, Lord, I'd like to try an experiment for the next few days. Give me the courage to go to the Word with my questions and my need. To ask you, 
what you want to say to me and what I should do. Build up my faith so that I can do it. Show me how to develop a relational network where we can talk about what we're doing. Because I want Christ to live in me. Now you can pray those words. The Lord knows the intent of your heart and you can pray whatever words come to you. Because he wants to be real to you. You can pray that right now. Again, with our heads bowed, none of us looking around, we think it's a big thing when you make a transaction with God. We believe it's something God wants to honor. So without us looking around, if you prayed and asked God to meet you at that point of need, would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say, I'm asking God for a breakthrough there. Yeah, up here in the front and over on my left, throughout the center, over here on the right, you bet. Way, way over on my right and to the back. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. You so yearn for a relationship with us that your patience is never-ending. For all these who slipped their hands up this morning, Lord, we're not trying to overpromise. We know that you want to meet them. You want Christ to live and be real to them. The Father, rush grace, your help in the midst of a need. Rush grace to them. Let it work. So their faith is built as they see you show up. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.